Chapter Seventeen of The Return of the Mucker by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. You are my girl. Mr. Anthony Harding was pacing back and forth the length of the veranda of the ranch house at El Robo, waiting for some word of hope from those who had ridden out in search of his daughter, Barbara. Each swirling dust devil that eddied across the dry flat on either side of the river roused hopes within his breast that it might have been spurred into activity by the hooves of a pony bearing a messenger of good tidings. But always his hopes were dashed, for no horseman emerged from the he's hate of the distance, where the little dust devils raced playfully among the cacti and the greasewood. But at last, in the northwest, a horseman, unheralded by gyrating dust column, came into sight. Mr. Harding shook his head sorrowfully. It had not been from this direction that he had expected word of Barbara yet he kept his eyes fastened upon the rider until the latter reined in at the ranch yard and loped a tired and sweating pony to the foot of the veranda steps. Then Mr. Harding saw who the newcomer was. Bridge, he exclaimed, what brings you back here? Don't you know that you endanger us as well as yourself by being seen here? General Villa will think that we have been harboring you. Bridge swung from the saddle and ran up to the veranda. He paid not the slightest attention to Anthony Harding's protest. How many men you got here you can depend on? he asked. "'None,' replied the Easterner. "'What do you mean?' "'None!' cried Bridge, incredulity and hopelessness showing upon his countenance. "'Isn't there a Chinaman and a couple of faithful Mexicans?' "'Oh, yes, of course,' assented Mr. Harding. "'But what are you driving at?' "'Peseda is on his way here to clean up El Robo. "'He can't be very far behind me. "'Call the men you got, and we'll get together all the guns and ammunition on the ranch, "'and barricade the ranch house. "'We may be able to stand them off. "'Have you heard anything of Miss Barbara?' "'Anthony Harding shook his head sadly.' Then we'll have to stay right here and do the best we can, said Bridge. I was thinking we might make a run for it if Miss Barbara was here. But as she's not, we must wait for those who went after her. Mr. Harding summoned the two Mexicans, while Bridge ran to the cookhouse and ordered the Chinaman to the ranch house. Then the erstwhile bookkeeper ransacked the bunkhouse for arms and ammunition. What little he found he carried to the ranch house, and with the help of the others, barricaded the doors and windows of the first floor. We'll have to make our fight from the upper windows, he explained to the ranch owner. If Peseda doesn't bring too large a force, we may be able to stand them off until we can get help from Corvaca. Call up there now and see if you can get Villa to send help. He ought to protect us from Peseda. I understand there's no love lost between the two. Anthony Harding went at once to the telephone and rang for the central at Corvaca. Tell it to the operator, shouted Bridge, who stood peering through the opening in the barricade before a front window. They're coming now, and the chances are that the first thing they'll do is cut the telephone wires. The Easterner poured his story and appeal for help into the ears of the girl at the other end of the line, and then for a few moments there was silence in the room as he listened to her reply. Impossible, and, my God, it can't be true. Bridge heard the older man ejaculate, and then he saw him hang up the receiver and turn from the instrument, his face drawn and pinched with an expression of utter hopelessness. What's wrong? asked Bridge. Via has turned against the Americans, replied Harding, dully. The operator evidently feels friendly toward us, for she warned me not to appeal to Via and told me why. Even now, this minute, the man is a force of 2,500 ready to march on Columbus, New Mexico. Three Americans were hanged in Corvaca this afternoon. It's horrible, sir. It's horrible. We are all as good as dead this very minute. Even if we stand off Peseda, we can never escape to the border through Villa's forces. It looks bad, admitted Bridge. In fact, it couldn't look much worse. But here we are, and while our ammunition holds out, all we can do is stay here and use it. Will you men stand by us? He addressed the Chinaman and the two Mexicans, who assured him that they had no love for Peseda, and would fight for Anthony Harding in preference to going over to the enemy. Good, exclaimed Bridge, and now for upstairs. They'll be howling around here in about five minutes. We want to give them a reception they won't forget. 
He led the way to the second floor where the five took up positions near the front windows. A short distance from the ranch house they could see the enemy, consisting of a detachment of some twenty of Pesada's troopers riding at a brisk trot in their direction. Pesada's with them, announced Bridge presently. He's the little fellow on the sorrel. Wait until they are close up, then give him a few rounds, but go easy on the ammunition. We haven't any too much. Pesada, expecting no resistance, rode boldly into the ranch yard. At the bunkhouse in the office his little force halted while three or four troopers dismounted and entered the buildings in search of victims. Disappointed there, they moved toward the ranch house. Lie low, Bridge cautioned his companions. Don't let them see you, and wait till I give the word before you fire. On came the horsemen at a slow walk. Bridge waited until they were within a few yards of the house, then he cried, Now let them have it! A rattle of rifle fire broke from the upper windows into the ranks of the pesatistas. Three troopers reeled and slipped from their saddles. Two horses dropped in their tracks. Cursing and yelling, the balance of the horsemen wheeled and galloped away in the direction of the office building, followed by the fire of the defenders. That wasn't so bad, cried Bridge. I'll venture a guess that Mr. Pesada is some surprised, and sore. There they will go behind the office. They'll stay there a few minutes talking it over and giving up their courage to try it again. Next time they'll come from another direction. You two, he continued, turning to the Mexicans, take positions on the east and the south sides of the house. Sing can remain here with Mr. Harding. I'll take the north side facing the office. Shoot at the first man who shows his head. If we can hold them off until dark, we may be able to get away. Whatever happens, don't let one of them get close enough to fire the house. That's what they'll try for. It was fifteen minutes before the second attack came. Five dismounted troopers made a dash for the north side of the house, but when Bridge dropped the first of them before he had taken ten steps from the office building and wounded the second, the others retreated for shelter. Time and again, as the afternoon wore away, Peseta made attempts to get men close up to the house, but in each instance they were driven back, until at last they desisted from their efforts to fire the house or rush it, and contented themselves with firing an occasional shot through the windows opposite them. They're waiting for dark, said Bridge to Mr. Harding during a temporary lull in the hostilities, and then were goners unless the boys come back from across the river in time. "'Couldn't we get away after dark?' asked the Easterner. "'It's our only hope if help don't reach us,' replied Bridge. But when the night finally fell and the five men made an attempt to leave the house upon the side away from the office building, they were met with the flash of carbines and the ping of bullets. One of the Mexican defenders fell, mortally wounded, and the others were barely able to drag him in and replace the barricade before the door when five of Pesada's men charged close up to their defenses. These were finally driven off, and again there came a lull. But all hopes of escape was gone, and Bridge reposted the defenders at the upper windows, where they might watch every approach to the house. As the hours dragged on, the hopelessness of their position grew upon the minds of all. Their ammunition was almost gone. Each man had but a few rounds remaining, and it was evident that Peseda, through an inordinate desire for revenge, would persist until he had reduced their fortress and claimed the last of them as his victims. It was with such cheerful expectations that they awaited the final assault which would see them without ammunition and defenseless in the face of the cruel and implacable foe. It was just before daylight when the anticipated rush occurred. From every side rang the reports of carbines and the yells of the bandits. There were scarcely more than a dozen of the original twenty left, but they made up for their depleted numbers by the rapidity which they worked their firearms and the loudness and ferocity of the savage cries. And this time they reached the shelter of the veranda and commenced battering at the door. At the report of the rifle so close to them, Billy Burns shoved Barbara quickly to one side and leapt forward to close with the man who barred their way to liberty. That they had surprised him even more than he had them was evidenced by the wildness of his shot which passed harmlessly above their heads, as well as by the fact that he had permitted them to come so close before engaging them. To the latter event was attributable his undoing, for it permitted Billy Byrne to close with him before the Indian could reload his antiquated weapon. Down the two men went. 
the American on top, each striving for a death hold. But in weight and strength and skill the Piman was far outclassed by the trained fighter, a part of whose daily workouts had consisted in wrestling with proficient artists of the mat. Barbara Harding ran forward to assist her champion, but as the men rolled and tumbled over the ground, she could find no opening for a blow that might not endanger Billy Byrne quite as much as it endangered his antagonist. But presently she discovered that the American required no assistance. She saw the Indian's head bending slowly forward beneath the resistless force of the other's huge muscles. She heard the crack that announced the parting of the vertebrae, and saw the limp thing which had but a moment before been a man, pulsing with life and vigor, roll helplessly aside, a harmless and inanimate lump of clay. Billy Byrne leapt to his feet, shaking himself as a great mastiff might whose coat had been ruffled in a fight. Come, he whispered, we gotta beat it now for sure. That guy shot a lead him right down to us, and once more they took up their flight down toward the valley, along an unknown trail through the darkness of the night. For the most part they moved in silence, Billy holding the girl's arm or hand to steady her over the rough and dangerous portions of the path, and as they went there grew in Billy's breast a love so deep and so resistless that he found himself wondering that he had ever imagined that his former passion for this girl was love. This new thing surged through him and over him, with all the blind, brutal, compelling force of a mighty tidal wave. It battered down and swept away the frail barriers of his newfound gentleness. Again he was the mucker, hating the artificial wall of social caste which separated him from the girl, and now he was ready to climb the wall, or better still, to batter it down with his huge fists. But the time was not yet. First he must get Barbara to a place of safety. On and on they went. The night grew cold. Far ahead there sounded the occasional pop of a rifle. Billy wondered what it could mean, and as they approached the ranch, he discovered that it came from that direction. He hastened their steps to even greater speed than before. "'Somebody's shooting up at the ranch,' he volunteered. "'Wonder who it could be. Suppose it is your friend in general?' asked the girl. Billy made no reply. They reached the river, and as Billy knew not where the fords lay, he plunged in at the point which the water first barred their progress, and dragging the girl after him, plowed bull-like for the opposite shore. Where water was above his depth, he swam while Barbara clung to his shoulders, Thus they made the passage quickly and safely. Billy stopped long enough to shake the water out of his carbine, which the girl had carried across, and then forged ahead toward the ranch house, from which the sounds of battle came now in increasing volume. And at the ranch house, hell was popping. The moment Bridge realized that some of the attackers had reached the veranda, he called the surviving Mexican and the Chinaman to follow him to the lower floor, where they might stand a better chance to repel this new attack. Mr. Harding he persuaded to remain upstairs. Outside a dozen men were battering to force an entrance. Already one panel had splintered, and as Bridge entered the room he could see the figures of the bandits through the hole they had made. Raising his rifle, he fired through the aperture. There was a scream as one of the attackers dropped, but the others only increased their efforts, their oaths, and their threats of vengeance. The three defenders poured a few rounds through the sagging door. Then Bridge noted that the Chinaman ceased firing. "'What's the matter?' he asked. "'Oli goni,' replied Singh, pointing to the ammunition belt. At the same instant the Mexican threw down his carbine and rushed for a window on the opposite side of the room. His ammunition was exhausted, and with it had departed his courage. Flight only seemed the only course remaining. Bridge made no effort to stop him. He would have been glad to fly, too, but he could not leave Anthony Harding, and he was sure that the older man would prove unequal to any sustained flight on foot. "'You better go, too, Singh,' he said to the Chinaman, placing another bullet through the door. "'There's nothing more that you can do, and it may be that they are all on this side now. I think they are.' You fellows have fought splendidly. Wish I can give you something more substantial than thanks, but that's all I have now, and shortly Peseta won't even leave me that much. All light, replied Singh, cheerfully, and a second later he was clambering through the window in the wake of the loyal Mexican. And then the door crashed in, and half a dozen troopers, followed by Peseta himself, burst into the room. 
Bridge was standing at the foot of the stairs, his carbine clubbed, for he had just spent his last bullet. He knew that he must die, but he was determined to make them purchase his life as dearly as he could, and to die in defense of Anthony Harding, the father of the girl he loved, even though hopelessly. Pesada saw from the American's attitude that he had no more ammunition. He struck up the carbine of a trooper who was about to shoot Bridge down. Wait, commanded the bandit. Cease firing. His ammunition is gone. Will you surrender? he asked of Bridge. Not until I've beaten the heads of one or two of your friends, he replied. That which their egotism leads them to imagine our brains. No, if you take me alive, Pesada, you'll have to kill me to do it. Pesada shrugged. Very well, he said indifferently. It makes little difference to me. That stairway is as good as a wall. These brave defenders of the liberty of poor, bleeding Mexico will make an excellent firing squad. Attention, my children. Ready? Aim. Eleven carbines were leveled at bridge. In the ghastly light of early dawn, the sallow complexions of the Mexicans took on a weird hue. The American made a wry face. A slight shudder shook his slender frame, and then he squared his shoulders and looked Pesada smilingly in the face. The figure of a man appeared at the window through which the Chinaman and the loyal Mexican had escaped. Quick eyes took in the scene within the room. Hey, he yelled, cut the rough stuff, and leaped into the room. Pesada, surprised by the interruption, turned toward the intruder before he had given the command to fire. A smile lit his features when he saw who it was. Ah, he exclaimed, my dear Captain Byrne, just in time to see a traitor and a spy pay the penalty for his crimes. Nothing doing, growled Billy Byrne, and then he threw his carbine to his shoulder and took careful aim at Pesada's face. How easy it would have been to have hesitated the moment in the window before he made his presence known just long enough for Pesita to speak the single word that would have sent eleven bullets speeding into the body of the man who loved Barbara, and whom Billy believed the girl loved. But did such a thought occur to Billy Byrne of Grand Avenue? It did not. He forgot every other consideration beyond his loyalty to a friend. Bridge and Pesita were looking at him in wide-eyed astonishment. "'Lay down your carbines,' Billy shot his command at the firing squad. "'Lay em down, or I'll bore Pesita. "'Tell him to lay em down, Pesita. "'I got a beat on your beezer.' Pesita did as he was bid his yellow face pasty with rage. Now the cartridge belts, snapped Billy, and when these had been deposited upon the floor, he told Bridge to disarm the bandit chief. Is Mr. Harding safe? he asked of Bridge, and receiving an affirmative, he called upstairs for the older man to descend. As Mr. Harding reached the foot of the stairs, Barbara entered the room by the window through which Billy had come, a window which opened upon the side veranda. Now we got a hike, announced Billy. It will never be safe for none of you here after this, not even if you think Villa's your friend, which he ain't the friend of no American. We know that now, said Mr. Harding, and repeated to Billy that which the telephone operator had told him earlier in the day. Marching Pesada and his men ahead of them, Billy and the others made their way to the rear of the office building, where the horses of the bandits were tethered. They were each armed now from the discarded weapons of the raiders, and well supplied with ammunition. The Chinaman and the loyal Mexican also discovered themselves when they learned the tables had been turned upon Pesada. They too were armed and all were mounted, and when Billy had loaded the remaining weapons upon the balance of the horses, the party rode away driving Pesada's livestock and arms ahead of them. "'I imagine,' remarked Bridge, "'that you've rather discouraged pursuit for a while, at least. But pursuit came sooner than they had anticipated.' They had reached a point on the river not far from Jose's when a band of horsemen appeared approaching from the west. Billy urged his party to greater speed that they might avoid meeting, if possible. But it soon became evident that the strangers had no intention of permitting them to go unchallenged, for they altered their course and increased their speed, so that they were soon bearing down upon the fugitives at a rapid gallop. I guess, said Billy, that we'd better open up on em. It's a cinch they ain't no friends of ours anywhere in these parts. Hadn't we better wait a moment, said Mr. Harding? We do not want a chance making any mistake. It ain't never a mistake to shoot a dago, replied Billy. His eyes were fastened upon the approaching horseman, and he presently gave an exclamation of recognition. 
"'There's Rosales,' he said. "'I couldn't mistake that beanpole nowheres. "'We're safe enough in taking a shot at him if Rosie's with him. "'He's Pesada's head guy.' and he drew his revolver and took a single shot in the direction of his former comrade. Bridge followed his example. The oncoming pesetistas reined in. Billy returned his revolver to its holster and drew his carbine. "'You ride on ahead,' he said to Mr. Harding and Barbara. "'Bridge and I will bring up the rear.' Then he stopped his pony, and turning, took deliberate aim at the knot of horsemen to their left. A bandit tumbled from his saddle, and the fight was on. Fortunately for the Americans, Rosales had but a handful of men with him, and Rosales himself was never keen for a fight in the open. All morning he hovered around the rear of the escaping Americans, but neither side did much damage to the other, and during the afternoon Billy noticed that Rosales merely followed within sight of them, after having dispatched one of the men back in the direction from which they had come. After reinforcements, commented Byrne. All day they rode without meeting with any roving bands of soldiers or bandits, and the explanation was all too sinister to the Americans, when coupled with the knowledge that Villa was to attack an American town that night. I wish we could reach the border in time to warn them, said Billy, but they ain't no chance. If we cross before sun-up tomorrow morning, we'll be doing well. He had scarcely spoken to Barbara Harding all day, for his duties as rear guard had kept him busy, nor had he conversed much with Bridge, though he had often eyed the latter, whose gaze wandered many times to the slender, graceful figure of the girl ahead of them. Billy was thinking as he had never had thought before. It seemed to him a cruel fate that so shaped their destinies that his best friend loved the girl Billy loved. That Bridge was ignorant of Billy's infatuation for her, the latter knew well. He could not blame Bridge, nor could he, upon the other hand, quite reconcile himself to the more than apparent adoration which marked his friend's attitude toward Barbara. As daylight waned, the fugitives realized from the shuffling gait of their mounts, from drooping heads and dull eyes, that rest was imperative. They themselves were fagged, too, and when a ranch house loomed in front of them, they decided to halt for much-needed recuperation. Here they found three Americans who were totally unaware of Villa's contemplated raid across the border and who, when they were informed of it, were doubly glad to welcome six extra carbines, for Barbara not only was armed, but was eminently qualified to expand ammunition without wasting it. Rosales and his small band halted out of range of the ranch, but they went hungry while their quarry fed themselves and their tired mounts. The Clark brothers and their cousin, a man by the name of Mason, who were the sole inhabitants of the ranch, counseled a long rest, two hours at least, for the border was still ten miles away, and speed at the last moment might be their sole means of salvation. Billy was for moving on at once before the reinforcements, for which he had been sure Rosales had dispatched his messenger, could overtake them. But the others were tired and argued, too, that upon jaded ponies they could not hope to escape, and so they waited until, just as they were ready to continue their flight, flight became impossible. Darkness had fallen when the little party commenced to resaddle their ponies, and in the midst of their labors there came a rude and disheartening interruption. Billy had kept either the Chinaman or Bridge constantly upon watch toward the direction in which Rosales's men lolled smoking in the dark, and it was the crack of Bridge's carbine which awoke the Americans to the fact that though the border lay but a few miles away, they were still far from safety. As he fired, Bridge turned in his saddles and shouted to the others to make for the shelter of the ranch house. "'There are two hundred of them,' he cried. "'Run for cover!' Billy and the Clark brothers leapt to their saddles and spurred toward the point where Bridge sat pumping lead into the advancing enemy. Mason and Mr. Harding hurried Barbara to the questionable safety of the ranch house. The Mexican followed them, and Bridge ordered Singh back to assist in barricading the doors and windows, while he and Billy and the Clark boys held the bandits in momentary check. Falling back slowly and firing constantly as they came, the four approached the house, while Peseda and his full band advanced cautiously after them. They had almost reached the house when Bridge lunged forward from his saddle. The Clark boys had dismounted and were leading their ponies inside the house. Billy alone noted the wounding of his friend. Without an instant's hesitation, he slipped from his saddle, ran back to where Bridge lay, and lifted him in his arms. Bolts were pattering thick about them. 
a horseman far in advance of his fellows galloped forward with drawn saber to cut down the gringos billy casting an occasional glance behind saw the danger in time to meet it just in fact as the weapon was cutting through the air toward his head dropping bridge and dodging to one side he managed to escape the cut but before the swordsman could recover billy had leapt to his pony's side and seized the rider about the waist dragging him to the ground rosales he exclaimed and struck the man as he had never struck another in all his life with the full force of his mighty muscles backed by his great weight with clenched fists full to the face there was a spurting of blood and splintering of bone and captain guillermo rosales sank senselessly to the ground his career of crime and rapine ended forever again billy lifted bridge in his arms and this time he succeeded in reaching the ranch house without opposition though a little crimson stream trickled down his left arm to drop upon the face of his friend and he deposited bridge upon the floor of the house all night the pesatistas circled the lone ranch house all night they poured their volleys into the adobe walls and through the barricaded windows all night the little band of defenders fought gallantly for their lives but as day approached the futility of their endeavors was borne in upon them for of the nine one was dead and three wounded and the number of the assailants seemed undiminished billy byrne had been lying all night upon his stomach before a window firing into the darkness at the dim forms which occasionally showed against the dull dead background of the moonless desert presently he leapt to his feet and crossed the floor to the room in which the horses had been placed everyone fired toward the rear of the house as fast as they can said billy i want a clear space for my getaway where are you going asked one of the clark brothers north replied billy after some of funston's men on the border but they won't cross said mr harding washington won't let them they gotta snapped billy byrne and they will when they know there's an american girl here with a bunch of dagoes yapping around you'll be killed said price clark you can't never get through leave it to me replied billy just get ready and open that back door when i give the word and then shut it again in a hurry when i've gone through he led a horse from the side room and mounted it open her up bows he shouted so long everybody price clark swung the door open billy put spurs to his mount and threw himself forward flat against the animal's neck another moment he was through and a rattling fusillade of shots proclaimed the fact that his bold feet had not gone unnoted by the foe the little mexican pony shot like a bolt from a crossbow out across the level desert the rattling of carbines only served to add speed to his frightened feet billy sat erect in the saddle guiding the horse with his left hand and working his revolver methodically with his right at a window behind him barbara harding stood breathless and spellbound until he disappeared into the gloom of the early morning darkness to the north then she turned with a weary sigh and resumed her place beside the wounded bridge whose head she bathed with cool water while he tossed in a delirium of fever the first streaks of daylight were piercing the heavens the pesatistas were rallying for a decisive charge the hopes of the little band of besieged were at low ebb when from the west there sounded the pounding of many hoofs. via moaned weston clark hopelessly we're done for now sure enough he must be coming back from his raid on the border in the faint light of dawn they saw a column of horsemen deployed suddenly into a long thin line which galloped forward over the flat earth coming toward them like a huge relentless engine of destruction the pesatistas were watching too they had ceased firing and sat in their saddles forgetful of their contemplated charge the occupants of the ranch house were gathered at the small windows what's them cried mason them things floating over em they're giddens exclaimed price clark the giddens of the united states cavalry regiment see em see em god but don't they look good there was a wild whoop from the lungs of the advancing cavalrymen Pasita's troops answered it with a scattering volley and a moment later the americans were among them in that famous revolver charge which is now history daylight had come revealing to the watchers in the ranch house the figures of the combatants in the thick of the fight loomed the giant figure of a man in nondescript garb which more closely resembled the apparel of pesatistas than it did the uniforms of the american soldiery yet it was with them he fought barbara's eyes were the first to detect him there's mr byrne she cried it must have been he who brought the troops 
Why, he hasn't had time to reach the border yet, remonstrated one of the Clark boys, much less get back here with him. There he is, though, said Mr. Harding. It's certainly strange. I can't understand that American troops are doing across the border, especially under the present administration. The Pesatistas held their ground for but a moment when they wheeled and fled, but not before Peseta himself had forced his pony close to that of Billy Byrne. Traitor, screamed the bandit, you shall die for this, and fired point-blank at the American. Billy felt the burning sensation in his already wounded left arm, but his right was still good. For poor, bleeding Mexico, he cried, and put a bullet through Peseta's forehead. Under escort of the men of the 30th Cavalry who had pursued Villa's raiders into Mexico, and upon whom Billy Byrne had stumbled by chance, the little party of fugitives came safely to United States soil, where all but one breathed sighs of heartfelt relief. Bridge was given first aid by the members of the hospital corps, who assured Billy that his friend would not die. Mr. Harding and Barbara were taken in by the wife of an officer, and it was at the quarters of the latter that Billy Byrne found her alone in a sitting-room. The girl looked up as he entered, a sad smile upon her face. She was about to ask him of his wound, but he gave her no opportunity. "'I've come for you,' he said. "'I gave you up once when I thought it was better for you to marry a man in your own class. I won't give you up again. You're mine. You're my girl. I'm going to take you with me. We're going to Galveston as fast as we can, and from there we're going to Rio. You belong to me long before Bridge saw you. He can't have you. Nobody can have you but me. And if anyone tries to keep me from taking you, they'll get killed.' He took a step nearer. That brought him close to her. She did not shrink only looked up into his face with wide eyes filled with wonder. He seized her roughly in his arms. "'You're my girl,' he cried hoarsely. "'Kiss me.' "'Wait,' she said. First, tell me what you mean by saying that Bridge couldn't have me. I never knew that Bridge wanted me, and I certainly never wanted Bridge. "'Oh, Billy, why didn't you do this long ago? Months ago in New York I wanted you to take me, but you left me to another man whom I didn't love. I thought you had ceased to care, Billy, and since we had been together here, since that night in the room back in the office—' You have made me feel that I was nothing to you. Take me, Billy. Take me anywhere in the world that you go. I love you and I'll slave for you. Anything, just to be with you. Barbara, cried Billy Byrne, and then his voice was smothered by the pressure of warm, red lips against his own. A half hour later, Billy stepped out into the street to make his way to the railroad station that he might procure transportation for three to Galveston. Anthony Harding was going with them. He had listened to Barbara's pleas and had finally volunteered to back Billy Byrne's flight from the jurisdiction of the law or at least to a place where, under a new name, he could start life over again and live it as the son-in-law of old Anthony Harding should live. Among the crowd viewing the havoc wrought by the raiders the previous night was a large man with a red face. It happened that he turned suddenly about as Billy Byrne was on the point of passing behind him. Both men started as recognition lighted their faces, and he of the red face found himself looking down the barrel of a six-shooter. "'Put it up, Byrne,' he admonished the other coolly. "'I didn't know you were so good on the draw.' "'I'm good on the draw, all right, Flanagan,' said Billy." and i ain't drawn for amusement neither i got a chance to get away and live straight and have a little happiness in life and flanagan the man who tries to crab my name is going to get himself croaked i'm never going back to stir alive you see yep said flanagan i see but i ain't trying to crab your game i ain't down here after you this trip where you been anyway that you didn't know the war's over why coke sheehan confessed a month ago that it was him that croaked schneider and the governor pardoned you about ten days ago you stringing me asked billy a vicious glint in his eyes on a level, Flanagan assured him. Wait, I got a clipping from the trib in my clothes somewhere that gives all the dope. He drew back some papers from his coat pocket and handed one to Billy. Turn your back and hold up your hands while I read, said Byrne. And as Flanagan did as he was bid, Billy unfolded the soiled bit of newspaper and read that which set him a-trembling with nervous excitement. A moment later, Detective Sergeant Flanagan ventured a rearward glance to note how Byrne received the joyful tidings which the newspaper article contained. Well, I'll be, ejaculated the sleuth. 
for billy byrne was already a hundred yards away and breaking all records in his dash for the sitting-room he had quitted but a few minutes before it was a happy and contented trio who took the train the following day on their way back to new york city after bidding bridge good-bye in the improvised hospital and exacting his promise that he would visit them in new york in the near future it was a month later spring was filling the southland with new sweet life the joy of living was reflected in the song of birds and the opening of buds beside a slow-moving stream a man squatted before a tiny fire a battered tin can half filled with water stood close to the burning embers upon a sharpened stick the man roasted a bit of meat and as he watched it curling at the edges as the flame licked it he spoke aloud though there was none to hear just for a con i'd like to know yes he crossed over long ago and he was right believe me bo if somewhere in the south down where the clouds lie on the sea he found a sweet penelope with buds of roses in her hair and kisses on her mouth which is what they will be singing about me one of these days he commented end of chapter seventeen end of the return of the mucker by edgar rice burroughs